you could see the port's grain silos from across Beirut. The 48 towering cylinders, each standing nearly 50 meters high and eight and a half meters wide. It's under the shadow of these on an August afternoon in 2020 that a ship pulls up to the quay. Hassan Hasruti knows it's going to be a long night ahead. It's been like this for the decades he's worked at the silos, even during the 15-year civil war. The ship arrives and he and his team work non-stop to offload its cargo of grain onto a conveyor belt and into the massive cream-colored silos. Hassan's not really supposed to be working, but he switched shifts so he can take the following Friday off to spend a religious holiday with his family. Settling in for the night, he calls his wife, asking her to bring him a pillow and a blanket in case he manages to find a few moments of rest. Hassan is a friendly, affable man with a broad smile that stretches wide under the moustache he's worn since he was a young man. Now the moustache has grown white. He's nearly 60 years old, only a few years off retirement age. The day before, he was at his hometown in the mountains with his family. He's building a retirement home there and has already started growing fruit and vegetables on the land. He's looking forward to spending more time with his family. But that will have to wait. For now, there's a ship to unload. The team sets the conveyor belts running. The old machine that powers them has been overworked for decades and it makes a terrible noise. A few of the guys get on the ship to help unload the grain. But shortly after 5 p.m., there's a problem. There's a fire in the adjacent warehouse. None of the grain workers know much about what's in it. They only know it as Warehouse 12. They've no idea a fuse has just been lit. This is The Blast from Beyond the Headlines. I'm Finbar Anderson, and in this episode, we're down on the docks of Beirut Port. We're trying to piece together what was happening in the six years the ammonium nitrate sat in a Beirut warehouse, and how it led to that dramatic moment. Oh wow, there's some like, there's some containers that look like they've just been crumpled by a giant hand. They're just twisted. Crumpled Pepsi cans, you know? When you crumple your drink after you drank it. There's literally just nothing left of the hangar. It would have been here. You know, you see from the satellite images, it's parallel to the silos almost, and there's just nothing. It's just an empty hole. Ah, so all this water wasn't here before? No, 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 it wasn't here. I was standing down at the port with my colleague, Suniva Rose, looking for the spot where Warehouse 12 once stood. Suniva has lived in Beirut for close to six years and covered the explosion when it happened. If you remember, from the end of the last episode, we heard from Captain Barisa the Rosas, who transported the 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate to Beirut. We heard how legal issues prevented the ship from carrying on its journey to Mozambique, 
and how, after some wrangling, the ammonium nitrate ended up in that warehouse. If you haven't heard episode one, go back and listen now. It's quite an adventure, from Georgia to Beirut, with an old Russian ship captain. Today, we'll pick up here and look more at that decision to unload the Rosas and who was involved. It's hard to fathom just how huge the explosion was when that ammonium nitrate detonated. I was blown off my feet and all the windows of my flat a kilometer away from the port blew up in my face. Up close, the damage was monumental. The power of the blast left a crater 130 meters wide where Warehouse 12 had been. Among the neat, straight lines of the docks is a crater filled with murky water. Just 20 or 30 meters from the crater are the shattered remains of the monolithic grain silos. But from far away, or even from the sky, you know, when you leave by plane, you see them and they, I don't know, I have this feeling they look bigger. Dominate each picture of Beirut. Mm. It's very really peaceful, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's so quiet. Lots of birds eating the grain, I guess. Some of the grain still looks quite fresh, doesn't it? All over Beirut, there are still the shells of abandoned buildings, thrown up in the boom years, just before the outbreak of Lebanon's 15-year civil war in 1975. But the silos were different. They stood strong all the way through the war, surviving thanks to their solid construction and an understanding from the militias that Lebanese people still needed the grain to survive. I mean, you can see these... I mean, we can see a cross-section of the of the kind of walls of the silo because they've been blasted away and they are, you know, they're incredibly thick. I think this would have been where the operations room was. I think it was just kind of on this corner of the on this corner of the building, but there's there's nothing there now. It's just been a, this corner has just been obliterated. Even before the blast, Lebanon was facing the worst economic crisis in its history. For years, jobs have been hard to come by. The cost of living is high, and power, water, and basic services are rationed, expensive, or non-existent. But it wasn't always like this. The marketing posters for the country's Middle East airlines once touted the idea to Europeans that they could ski in the morning and swim in the Mediterranean in the afternoon. It was a regional banking hub, the Switzerland of the Middle East, a city of East and West meeting. There was this golden image of Lebanon, at least to those overseas, and people came the likes of Frank Sinatra, Bridget Bardot, and Omar Sharif holidayed in Beirut. But the foundation being laid down after they gained independence from France in 1943 was shaky. Inequality, sectarianism, politics, and rivalries led the country to a civil war in 1975 that raged for 15 long years. Lebanon is a tiny country, and the fighting spread all the way up the coast and into the mountains. 
Hassan Hasruti was from a small village in a valley just south of Beirut. To him, the grain silos offered steady work to provide for his family and, during the war, a certain amount of safety. Sometimes the shelling was so bad it was impossible to leave the port and it wasn't unusual for Hassan to come home only once a week. Even so, his wife Ibtisam says he loved working at the silos. We're working it, but everyone's eating it, he would say. She was just 14 when they met. Her parents had already lined up a potential husband for her, but she wasn't interested. Hassan promised that if she could wait until they left school and he could start earning a living, he would marry her. Hassan's father worked at the port for a full four decades before him. By the time he started at the port's grain silos in 1983, the civil war in Lebanon had been raging for eight years. Working at the port is a family business. Family members get priority. This was no different. And even though they moved closer to the city, Hassan loved his hometown. Every weekend, the family would go up to the village where he grew up. It's where he was building the home they would retire to. It has a river that flows from Wadi ibn Halay to Wadi Dair, and it has two church churches. It's very simple, and the life there is very pure, you know. You don't have like too many cars. You can go by foot whenever you, wherever you want, whenever you want. That's Tassiana, their daughter. She recalls how her father worked a lot, but was always planning ahead for his retirement and more time with his family. Uh, he used to spend nights and nights there, so he did not spend so much time with us. And they had long shifts and sometimes with no time limit. So we could not see him whenever we wanted to, whenever he feels like coming home, he could not do that. So it's like he always told my mom that I did not see my kids growing and I'm looking forward forward for my retirement so I can spend time with you. But as well as the long absences, his work at the port brought happy moments for the family. Once, during the war, we went down to the port. There was a ship with all sorts of zoo animals on it. We took Rana and Eli to go see, but I never really saw his office or anything. Rumel Enohra and his father Elias were colleagues of Ghassan. Rumel has only been working at the silos a few years, but his father remembers working with Ghassan during the war. The silos' thick walls kept them safe. The silos, it's, it's made, the walls are made of three and a half meters of uh, concrete, and and steel, so it was the safest place to be uh, to be inside the animal. But the silos that had protected Hassan through the war and provided for the family for years were also where he would die. We heard from Baris in episode one how the ammonium nitrate ended up in Beirut. What we want to understand now is why it stayed there. When the civil war eventually ground to a halt in 1990, after 15 bloody years, the port was being run by a private company. 
they asked the Lebanese government for a 15-year extension to their mandate to compensate for the time and profits lost during the fighting. But the government said no, and instead appointed a temporary committee to manage and operate the port. That temporary committee? It's still there. A few of the original members have moved on, but many remain. So we headed down to the port to try and get some answers. On the Beirut Port Authority board are two ministry representatives, one from the Public Works and Transport Ministry and the other from the Finance Ministry. The Transport Ministry agreed to let us meet their man at the port, Shadi Hassin. Hassin was sitting with a man called Christian Shard. We hadn't expected him to be there, but the elderly gentleman has sat on the board since 2002, and he was happy to take our questions. He wears a dark blue blazer over a blue linen shirt. His silver hair is swept back from his forehead. Liver spots dot his hands, and a walking cane rests on the long boardroom table in front of him. Out the window behind Shard are the crippled silos and the ground zero of the explosion. There was a legal decision by a judge to seize the merchandise, the nitrat. Then this decision, the, the judge asked the customs to remove the goods from the horus and put them somewhere. Here, the customs and the gestion exploitation de port de Beirut liaised together, and as Hangar uh, 12 was dedicated to dangerous materials, okay, they uh, decided to put th these materials in the Hangar 12. There was two keys for this hangar, one with the customs and one with the port. If any of both wanted to check on anything in this hangar, I mean, they were supposed to be two to open. Even if we had a key for the hangar, we couldn't go inside alone, okay? And all the goods were under the customs responsibility. So the Port Authority was aware of the ammonium nitrate. And Shah says they were involved in unloading the Rosas. Okay, we supplied labor and equipment for this handling. But the way the goods were uh, stored, the port, we uh, didn't know what was the proper way to store it. But shouldn't, shouldn't you know? Shouldn't, if, if it's your responsibility to put them somewhere... It's not our what? responsibility. I mean, they told us, put them in Hangar 12. Hangar 12 was a limited area, so we put them in Hangar 12. But don't you think you, you should... No, I mean... No, we should have received uh, proper instructions from the Lebanese army, uh, interior forces, whatever security and experts are availing in the port, we should have had proper instructions, okay, to store them. Right. 
So Shah says they knew the ammonium nitrate was there, but it wasn't the Port Authority's job to check it was stored properly. He directs those questions to the Customs Authority. Now, we couldn't sit down with the head of the Customs Authority, a man called Badri Daher, as he's one of the people detained for questioning by the judge investigating the blast. It's worth remembering that, as of the time of airing, no one has faced trial or been found guilty of any wrongdoing. So we met with Badri Daher's lawyer, Georges Khouri. He had a different story to tell. The one who chose Warehouse 12 and provided the manpower and logistics to move the goods from the ship to Warehouse 12 is the port administration. No one needed even a signature from the customs. In fact, Khodi says customs was never responsible for the Rosas or its shipment. He says customs is only involved with ships whose cargo is destined for Lebanon and that the Rosas was marked for transit. The role of customs is to collect customs duties on any goods that are offloaded. This ship had no goods to offload in Beirut. Therefore, customs do not even have the right to step foot on the ship. Remember from episode one, the boat was detained after creditors came looking for their money. But when the owners didn't come forward, the court seized the ship and ordered it to be unloaded. Khori says it was put under the guardianship of the transport ministry, which was at the time run by Ghazi Zaitar. Khori then goes on to say that the army should have dealt with the ammonium nitrate once it was on land. The judge, his decision, the judge that took the decision to empty the nitrate from the boat and put it in Beirut port, and the army that has the capacity and authority to seize and destroy it from the port and put it in Jebel and destroy them there. While Khori said customs weren't responsible, he did say the judge asked them to facilitate the operation to move the ammonium nitrate from the Rosas to Warehouse 12. He didn't elaborate on what exactly that means. Khori said various attempts were made by customs officials, including Daher, to spur action on the Rosas and the ammonium nitrate, with Khori's insistence that the transport ministry was in charge, we made that our next port of call. Now, Saniva has reached out to the transport ministry. The minister at the time, Ghazi Zaitar, and the caretaker minister, Michel Najjar, for this podcast several times, and no one is responding. We've asked them specifically whether they had custody of the ammonium nitrate. On the date of airing, we haven't had a response yet. The Director General is awaiting permission from the Minister to see if he is allowed to respond. So, we've heard from the Port Authority members. They say it wasn't their responsibility. And we've heard from the lawyer for the Customs Head, who says much the same. As well as the Transport Ministry officials, we've had the military, who told us they won't comment on an ongoing investigation. Like customs head Daher, both the former transport minister Ghazi Zaitar 
and former army head Jean Ahoji have been summoned by the judge investigating the blast. Officials at various ministries or bodies knew of the existence of 2,750 tons of highly dangerous, improperly stored ammonium nitrate. Many discussions appear to have happened, and plenty of noise was made. We've seen numerous court rulings, official letters and documents about the Rosas and its cargo from after its arrival in Beirut. But we're sure there are yet others that we have not seen. One thing we've learned along the way here is that this road is very winding and convoluted. But with that in mind, here's a bit of detail from the court documents we have seen. We've seen a court ruling by a judge called Jad Malouf ordering the transport ministry to unload the Rosas and store the cargo safely. We've seen a letter from the transport ministry to the port authorities asking them to provide a secure space to store the cargo due to it being dangerous. We've seen the request for customs to facilitate this and Shah told us the port authority did physically move the ammonium nitrate. So who was responsible for the ammonium nitrate after this point? Ultimately, that's the million dollar question. And it wasn't just court documents discussing the Rosas and its cargo. As far back as February 2014, a customs officer called Colonel Joseph Scaff wrote a letter saying that the Rosas should be moved away from the quayside. This is only a few months after the Rosas' arrival. Scaff calls the ammonium nitrate extremely dangerous and says it's a risk to the public. They're only a few hundred meters away, remember. Scaff's son recalls his father saying that the cargo should absolutely not be unloaded, and his brother remembered him vowing to block any attempt to do so. Scaff moved to a new job, overseeing customs at the airport in 2014, and a short time later the Rosas was moved to the breakwater, but only after the ammonium nitrate had been offloaded into Warehouse 12. Scaff's concerns were never heeded, and he died in 2017. In the same year as Scaff's warning, the legal firm representing Captain Baris and his crew say they sent a letter to authorities at the port warning of the dangerous cargo. They said the port told them they would refer it to the Justice Ministry and ask them to do what was necessary. Major Joseph Nadef worked for state security at the port. They're one of Lebanon's four security branches. He's been dubbed a whistleblower by local media. He said he wrote four reports in the six months before the blast, detailing his fears that the ammonium nitrate would be stolen to make explosives or catch fire. He was detained for questioning during the investigation and held for eight months. We met with Major Joseph Nadef when he was released recently, and while he spoke to us, he declined to be recorded for this podcast. Shard at the Port Authority said these warnings went right to the top. There was plenty of correspondence from officers, from people, maybe the customs, etc., writing to each other. It reached the presidency and the prime minister a few weeks before the, the blast. Prime Minister Hassan Diab's office revealed 
he knew about the ammonium nitrate, saying he received a report from state security 14 days before the explosion. It appears that it was Nadaf's reports that were submitted. The PM's office said Diab took the report to the Supreme Defense Council. This body brings together some of the country's most powerful people, the heads of all the security agencies, senior ministers, the prime minister, and the president. In short, the people who could have taken swift action. Diab blamed previous governments for failing to act. President Michel Aoun has said much the same. He insists he told the military to sort the matter, and as he has no authority over the port, left it at that. Asked by a reporter why he didn't follow up on that directive, he replied, Do you know how many problems have been accumulating? He's been in office since 2016, and also blamed past governments. One of the crucial elements here is that everyone we spoke to agreed the ammonium nitrate should have been moved. As we were poring over legal documents to try and work out what should have happened with the nitrate, we came across this proviso. Customs law states that abandoned goods can be seized by the customs authority and sold off. However, prohibited or restricted goods like weapons, explosives, and drugs, should not be sold off publicly. These can be given to the army or sold overseas at the discretion of the minister. So what about attempts to get rid of it? Khoury, the customs head's lawyer, said that the ammonium nitrate was offered to the military. We've seen a letter from them saying they had no use for it and suggested customs sell it to a Lebanese explosives company or return it to its country of origin. But Khoury said customs couldn't, as they didn't have custody of the ammonium nitrate. And again, the army declined to comment. Now, don't forget, there was one other interested party, the original purchaser. Fabrica de Explosivos Mozambique have admitted the ammonium nitrate was intended for them, but never arrived. They say they never owned it, since they hadn't yet paid for it. While you may think this is surely a unique situation, it appears to be far from the only case like it in Beirut port. A source at the port told us that while undertaking an inventory of damaged goods after the explosion, they found containers that had been abandoned for as long as 14 years. In the wake of the blast, the military also removed large quantities of other dangerous chemicals and more abandoned ammonium nitrate. We've never seen a full inventory of what exactly was in Warehouse 12. However, forensic investigations and local media later revealed that there were several tons of fireworks, acid, oil, car tires, even slow-burning fuse alongside the ammonium nitrate. As you've heard, all the major players at the port openly say they knew about the ammonium nitrate. The court knew, the president, and the prime minister knew. Even so, on the 4th of August 2020, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate still lay in Warehouse 12 when the fire started. 
Just one day before the port explosion, Hassan Hasruti and his wife Ittisam took a trip back to their hometown in the Shuf Mountains. Ittisam describes an idyllic, peaceful day with their friends and family. The children swam in the same river that Hassan used to mess around in with his friends all those decades ago. Ibtisam says her husband turned to her. Ibtisam, he said, it's like I'm back in the days of my childhood. Nevertheless, something was weighing on his mind. At one point, he turned to her and he said, I've done everything, but I still haven't found the land for my grave. Ibtisam swore at him, screw the grave. She told him in no uncertain terms that we've still got the house to build, where we're going to live. But still, she says, this was something he wanted to do even before finishing the house. The next day, on Tuesday, the 4th of August, Ghassan went to work in the silos. A grain ship had arrived at the silos that needed unloading. He called Ibtisam, asking her to bring him a blanket and pillow. He prepared to settle in for a long, hard few days of work before enjoying the religious holiday the following weekend with his family. But sometime after 5 p.m., the silo workers noticed something wrong. A fire had broken out in Warehouse 12. On the next episode of The Blast, we arrive at zero hour, the moment Warehouse 12 exploded and sent a shockwave through Beirut. You'll hear from a mother who lost her child, a family searching the rubble for their father and what happened next. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get the next episode as soon as it comes out. I've been your host, Finbar Anderson. This episode was produced by Suniva Rose, Arthur Edison, Aisha Khan, with assistance from Erin Brown and Wajid Al-Khamis. Voiceovers were read by Juman Jurala and Ahmed Maher. Artwork for the series is by Stephen Castelluccia with animation from Anish Grigari. Executive producers are James Haynes-Young and Erika el